On this episode of the This Is Belief One podcast, I am joined by Ashwin Ramnath, uh, who is a contributor for the Posting and Toasting, which is a Knicks blog, and he's the co-host of the PNT Show. What's up? How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Uh, not a whole lot. Just trying to uh, find topics to discuss, and figured I'd reach out to you. You know, you are a, a Bills fan. You are a Knicks fan, so I figured that these are two topics I normally don't talk about all that often, I figure, you know, kind of branch out a little bit and talk about two teams that, uh, one has had their own, uh, versions of struggle and being the Bills, and, you know, the Knicks are always a polarizing organization. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of high, high watermarks for both teams last couple of decades, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how accurate the tweet was, but I saw someone tweet out the win-loss record of the Knicks with and without Patrick Ewing, and it's stunning. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. Uh, they're, I don't know, they're basically been a losing organization for most of their existence, so other than, like, the championship years and the early 70s and then the Ewing years, um, so it's kind of, I don't know, It the Knicks stuff is always weird. They've always had a lot of, like, weird front office organizational stuff going on their ownership situations like at one time cbs owned them there's just been a lot of strange things going on so um i think a lot of that often you know ends up on the court and uh the results are there for everybody to see so well yeah the knicks are owned by james dolan and i too know the struggle of having a team owned by a dolan uh dolan family owns (laughs) the indians Indians, as well and Uh, when it comes to the Indians, chants and tweets of Dolan's cheap have been ever-present. Yeah, I mean, it's not really his issue with the Knicks, so it's kind of frustrating because his issue is actually... I mean, he's actually a great owner in terms of, like, spending. There's no issue with that. He has no problem writing checks and paying people. He's just picked all the wrong executives for the most part. And, um, you know, like, if you hire a bad executive... At that point, the rest of it is just, like, I think the meddling stuff that he gets shit on for is pretty not, I don't even think that's really the case. Um, I don't think any of the other stuff matters about, like, PR statements or kicking Spike Lee out for not going through the VIP entrance or Oakley or any of that. So I don't think that really matters. I don't think that impacts players' decisions. I think the fact that he's hired bad executives who build bad teams turns off players more than anything so um you know like if he ever gets an executive hire right we'll probably be in a good situation because that's what happened with the rangers in like 2006 they hired Sather, and then he just let Sather figure it out for like two three four years and the rangers have basically been like a very good competent organization for the last decade plus now so um you know hopefully one day the uh <laughs> his random dice rolling comes up in our favor for the Knicks. Well, it's, it seems like the executives always seem to do the, this is my team, I'm going to put my stamp on this organization, and I'm going to you know get rid of some of the guys that I don't like, just because the other guy that was before me yeah. brought them in, and then you end up having guys on your team that you draft, and they leave, then they do good, then you sign them for a whole bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Knicks have just done a lot of stupid things over history over like the course of you know what say like since ewing left so since 2000 basically they've 
constantly traded away picks to try and get better now. And, you know, for better or worse, I think something ticked in like 2013 or 2014 where they realized, okay, like organizationally they came to the realization that trading picks and trading young players is not a good way to like build anything sustainable. Um, Like they did have a good team in 2012-13. They won 54 games and Carmelo was really good that year and all that. But like that was not sustainable because of everything they gave away to get to that position. Um, and if you're doing that for like a LeBron, that's fine, but Carmelo is not LeBron. So like, you know, going all in on that is just not a good way of team building. So we've improved to the point now where we know that like having picks is good and accumulating picks is good and not tying up your cap space for years and years on mediocre star names who are on the downturn of their career or just aren't actually good. Um, those are things that we've realized now. So like we're better at being bad, um, <laughs> but we're not actually better at building a team competently around young players and like developing them and prioritizing all that stuff. So, um, you know, there's a new executive in charge now, Leon Rose. So, you know, we'll see. And we hired somebody from the Cavs organization, actually, Brock Aller, um, to kind of be his uh, right-hand man. So we'll see how that goes. That, that could be interesting. The Cavs have done their fair share of good moves and questionable moves recently. So we'll see uh, just how much of an impact he can make through his experience of dealing with the Cavs and what they've done. Is there anyone on the Knicks that you're like, I really like this person? Or maybe someone that's like, a lot of people like him, but I don't get it. Uh, I really like RJ Barrett. I really like Mitchell Robinson. I think they're good building blocks. Um, so like, I think you need, you know, two kind of like star players and then you need, you know, two or three good two way guys that can like fit in around them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think RJ Barrett could be one of those star players. I don't know if he will be. I think he has that potential. I think he has that talent. Um, if he, will or isn't i don't know but i definitely think he's like a piece to build with i think mitchell robinson can be like one of those two-way impact not star players but role players that have star impact um just kind of like his defensive capability his rim running uh rebounding all that stuff i think he's um you know i think i think even knicks fans aren't uh, as high on him as they should be because the things he got better at this year are not like sexy. They're not super exciting, you know, like getting better at running a dribble handoff or making contact on screens or timing like when you run to the rim or making better like defensive rotations. It's just not really exciting stuff, but um, it's stuff that matters. And I think he's a lot further along than I thought he would be when we drafted him because he was just like this kid who had not played organized basketball for a year and was like this mysterious guy who dropped in the draft because he kept changing agents and like didn't interview with anybody and kept flaking out on stuff and like he's still um i don't want to say stupid because that's like that's not really the right word but he's still very like immature in some ways not in like an unprofessional way but in ways where you're like you know he'll get really 
pissy about a, a call or two on the court and let it impact him for way too long and stuff like that. Um, but I think he's like way further along than I thought he'd be. He's way better with the media than he was when he first came in. Like he was so shy. He wouldn't even talk to anybody. Um, so like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty bullish on those guys. I like Frank Milikina. I think he's like, you know, I don't think he's ever going to be a star. I think he can be a solid combo guard off the bench, which like, again, at the eighth pick, you know, it's probably not what you're hoping for, but if you look at like the history of mid to late lotto picks, it's a pretty decent outcome. Um, Kevin Knox, I, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't trade him because there's no point, but he's been pretty bad for two years. I still have no idea what he's exactly good at, which is probably <laughs> not a good thing two years into your career. Um, he was a super project when we took him. So like that, that doesn't, upset me so much as much as like you know if a if this if you're taking a kid that's going to be like this three four five year project and he doesn't even have a particularly high floor which is like the main issue because he doesn't have some a bankable skill right now um like that's a problem to me because that's your entire rookie contract so if i'm not getting any value from your from your rookie contract I probably shouldn't be taking you in the lottery. Um, and right after that, when I wanted them to draft Mikal Bridges, I wasn't even like super high on Mikal Bridges, but I was just like, he can play right now. I know what he's going to do. He's going to be a good defender, knock down some threes. And like, lo and behold, he's basically been that guy in Phoenix. Um, mm-hmm. And and then like, you know, then there's also people that are like, well, we could have picked Shea Gilgis Alexander. I don't really bother too much with that because at the time, I don't think, I didn't see anybody banging the, the, the drum for Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Um, I know, like, yes, basketball evaluators and organizations should be held to a higher standard than random people on the internet discussing this stuff. But, like, that's just something where I I personally don't really have an interest in going down that route of criticism. I do think it's fair to criticize them for not taking Mikal Bridges because it seems they went with Kevin Knox because he had a really good workout. And it's like, I just don't know why <laughs> workout should... I mean, I guess it matters, but like it shouldn't matter that much where you take him over a person with if he was higher if one guy is higher on your board before, I don't think a workout should change that. But I don't know. I'm pretty sure the Cavs did the exact same thing when they made the Colin Sexton pick, by the way. Um <clears throat> with the mm. with a really good workout, but you know, not necessarily being it's kinda of surprised a lot of people when the Cavs took Sexton. Let's just put it that way. Um, I actually thought they were going to take Sexton. It just seemed like a Gilbert kind of like. I think he likes those kind of scoring guard type players. They, they I don't know. They, they've acquired a lot of them over like the years. Like I think I think as an organization they value right or wrong they value shot creation very heavily. Mm-hmm. So like Irving, Waiters, then now I mean after that they didn't really. I don't even like. I mean, I guess they took Wiggins. So again, another shot creation guy. Yeah. Um, they took, and then like you know, since they've been back in the lottery, it's been Sexton, it's been Garland, it's been Kevin Porter Jr., who I actually really like. I'm very uh, high on Kevin Porter Jr. For the record. Yeah, I like him. I think he's going to be a good pro. I think he has more upside than his draft slot. So that was a good value pick. Um, and I mean, they like do stuff too, like where they. I, mean, I know they made all those trades for a reason but they traded like they got jordan clarkson 
Rodney Hood and like they they definitely like value shot creation. I think that's fair to say as an organizational tenet. It's something they seem to put pretty high. Yeah, let me say about Jordan Clarkson's last uh, few games in Cleveland, he was not <laughs> uh, a very popular figure uh, uh, because yeah. towards the end of his Cavs tenure, he was he was exactly what you expect Jordan Clarkson, Clarkson to be. He'll score points, but he's not very efficient. And um, for fans who thought the team should be more competitive, which always confuses me, he, he wasn't leading them winning games. <laughs> No, he's just putting up numbers on a bad team. Anybody can do that. Not, not anybody can do that. That's actually its own skill, but it's like a very like useless skill for NBA teams because it's just like, okay, so you're putting up numbers, but we still blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he you know got traded and he like more or less disappeared. Um, yeah, Utah, right? Yeah, he's in Utah now, and so you know once that trade happened, it was just like. You know, I had Jordan Clarkson on my fantasy basketball team only because I knew he was going to get a lot of opportunities to score because there was nobody else. Um, and once he got traded to Utah, his numbers tanked. I'm like, cut bait, see ya. Um. <laughs> but um, what direction do you see the Knicks going into? Uh, it's a good question. Um a lot of fans, like, there's, like, two steps or two groups of fans, it seems. Um, one group wants to just be, like, quote-unquote smart and tank and just, like, play all the young guys 700,000 minutes and just see what happens, which is probably end up, um, you know, being bad and, like, maximizing our la- lottery odds because Cade Cunningham is, like, this generational prospect. He is, like, he's amazing. But, um and this draft in general is considered, or the 2021 draft is considered to be loaded. So it's like, let's just do that. So that's one thing that people want to do. Um, and then the other group is like, let's just stop being terrible and <laughs> make moves to like be good and get players in here that are good. And I think they will like, I don't think I, I find it impossible to believe that they're going to just do the former where like they're only playing young guys and that's like, yep, we're just going to, you know, the chip, let the chips fall where they might. I, I don't think they're going to do that um, for a variety of reasons. We don't really need to get into the history of it, but they've had seven straight losing seasons. Dolan's written a lot of checks. He has been happy to, uh, you know, let people tank in some ways during some of these seasons, but at some point he's probably like, you know, they fired their last exec for a reason. And part of that was a failure to put a winner on the court last, like after last summer's moves. And I think that's the goal. So I'm not sure that they're going to go like super aggressive and trade away. I don't think they're going to like start trading away picks and all like these young guys and all that stuff to, to get good. But I do think they will make like, moves that are geared towards putting a better product on the court um so something like i know a lot of people have suggested they trade for chris paul which i'm not like totally against if they basically just give up nothing because his contract is massive and like the you know in theory there's not going to be a huge market for him um so like you know if the if okc just wants to get off his money and you know, we give them Randall's expiring and Dennis Smith Jr.'s fake upside. Uh, 
and fake upside. Like, yeah, and yeah, I mean that's what he is. Uh, and just like eat the contract, sure. Like that that that's one move. I think we could sign Fred Van Vliet. I think there are a number of stretch fours that are on the market this summer, like Gallinari, Sarich, Morris, Jeremy Grant. Um, that we should be interested in. I think the lottery pick. Hopefully, you can pick somebody that. Um, yes, has the potential to be a major contributor moving forward, but can also help you right now on the court. Like I, I think they're going to try to be good. I don't think they're going to put all their eggs in that basket this summer to like, you know, get after it. Um, and you know, like for the most part, I don't even think they really need to do that much to get quote unquote good in the East. Like David Fisdale went four and eighteen to start the year, and then since then they've just been like you know 17 and 27 which over an 82 game season is 32 33 wins okay like that's like it's not good but that's like a normal bad team and i think the perception of the organization and just a lot of things would be different if Fisdale wasn't the worst coach i've ever seen and like mike miller just coached the entire season because you know if they're after 66 games if they have 26 27 wins you feel a little bit differently about how the season is going how your guys are developing where the progress is being made and all those things and you know i just like i say all that to say like if you can make an improvement in terms of getting better shooting in a couple of positions and getting a quality you know just even like an average starting point guard level of play Mm-hmm. Uh, at the starter level, like I think that's probably a playoff team in the East. At least this year it would have been, um, and maybe next year it's not because Brooklyn will be better, even though they were already in a playoff position. Um, you know, there are teams that might improve. Whatever, there, there's a lot of stuff that can happen, but I think it's a team that can be like both have reason for optimism. Like, hey, these are young guys that we're building with that should get better over the next three, four, five years, so we have room to grow. And also, like, yeah, we made a couple of good signings that helped us move along the win curve and add some wins here and make us look better on the court. Like, I think you can do both of those things. And that's not exciting because I know fans want to be like, either we're a contender or we're going to tank. But, like, you know, I don't think that's a realistic thing. It's not that It's not that simple. I mean, some teams are, I mean, some teams naturally just stink. Like, the, the Cavs naturally stink right now. Um mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily the fault of one player or a coach. Um, they're just naturally a bad team. And sometimes that happens and they just fall ass backwards into a top five lotto pick. Sometimes right. teams are naturally bad and they get screwed when it comes to the lottery. Um, when you when you look at... It's... it's I can't speak for the, for the Knicks in, in regards to the direction that they're going to, but um, in, in Cleveland's situation, it's like they're pulling in two different directions. Like, they have a whole bunch yeah. of young guys, and they have a whole bunch of veterans, and it's like half the team is fit to win now with good players, and the other half is this is going to be good maybe in four to five years. I don't know if the Knicks are similar in that uh, comparison. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of similar, and that was a big problem this year. Not... Like, actually, the one thing I really liked about the team this year was that... So we signed eight guys last summer, uh, most all on one-year deals of some nature, except for 
Julius Randle, who we signed on a two-year deal with a partial third-year guarantee. Um, so it's all like very short-term stuff. But the um, – I mean, look, when you have that many guys on expiring contracts and young guys and like a lot of dudes playing for minutes and contracts, um, like there can be a lot of internal conflict and lack of togetherness. Um that wasn't an issue actually with this year's team at all. So like for all the front office's issues, which they, you know, which Steve Mills eventually paid the price for, like that was not one. And that's a credit to them that like, you know, one of their things was we want to sign guys that are going to like set a good example and blah, 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 and be good vets and all that shit. But like they actually did, um, <clears throat> whether they were good on the court is a separate matter. Um, but like they actually did, you know, you could see it on the court. Like, you could see guys rooting for each other on the bench. Like, there was never, you know, that sense of, like, I'm not happy because this guy is doing well and that's going to, like, mess up my minutes or my role or any of that. So that's a good thing that was evident this year. Um, in terms of, like, is that a thing long-term moving forward? I don't know because really, like, the Knicks, the only players that they have under contract for sure going into next season are – Randall, who is 25, uh, R.J. Barrett, who's 19, Mitchell Robinson, 21, Frank Nilakina, 21, Kevin Knox, 20, Ignis Brasdek is 20, Dennis Smith Jr., 22. Like, it's a very young team, actually, in terms of, like, who's actually on the roster for sure going into next season. Um, then we have – we actually we have seven first-round picks over the next four years. Um, a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good position, like – the cap is clear. You have a lot of young guys, even if none of them are like, you know, forget Zion. Even if none of them are a John Morant or Jaron Jackson Jr. or, you know, like definitively established already at a very early point in their careers, quote, good players. I think you have a good, te- like, slate here to work with. Um, like I think, like I said, I think RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson are good players. They they might not be superstars, maybe they're not even stars, but I think they're both at least starting caliber players that you can be like, okay, we can we can have the we don't you don't necessarily need to build around them as much as you need to build with them in mind, if that makes sense. That um, does. Yeah, and I think Nilakina is very devi- divisive amongst the Knicks fans because, <sighs> like, defense is hard to quantify whereas his offense which has not been good enough over three years isn't so like you know there that's always a push and pull but like you know to me a guy on a team this bad who has been who has a positive on off for three years in a row probably doing something that would be more evidently valuable on a better team um so like is he the problem no he was not the answer but i don't think he's part of the problem um so like you have like three guys to varying degrees i think you can bank on as nba players that you can start being like okay we don't even need to worry about like so much how to build around them as much as like okay what what guys what skill sets do we need that they don't bring to the table to like add to the mix and like i think that's where the knicks are and that's fine like i think as as much as this draft isn't great, I think there are going to be options for them, regardless of where they pick, um, for players that should add 
things that they need. Um, there's a lot of lead ball handlers in this draft. I think there's a good amount of just unremarkable but solid role-playing guys that can spread the floor and shoot, which they definitely need. Um, you know, I think I think that's an okay position to be in. Uh, I actually feel the same way about the free agency class this summer. If they want to get better, there are guys they can sign to get better um, that actually fit with what the roster needs. And so, like, I, I, I'm okay with where they are. It's not the greatest place you could be, but it's not terrible. I think it's a lot worse on the outside looking in. And I think, you know, it's it's always weird because the downside of trading Porzingis was always that, like, if you struck out, you have basically pushed yourself back on the building timeline two or three years. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's kind of this weird conflated area we're in where I think it's frustrating because – you know, you drafted a, a really good player and then you traded him and the payoff wasn't there. So now you're kind of back to the point where you're like, okay, so we need to just build again. And that's frustrating, but like, that's where they are. And I don't totally mind it. Um, because I'm still not sure that like Kristaps on a max contract is, is he better than what the Knicks have? Absolutely. He's a really good player. Like there's no doubt, but I'm not, let's just say like I think the jury is still out on whether they ultimately will win or lose this trade. And I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, my concern with someone like Porzingis is that he's a big guy who's athletic and was it a knee injury he had? Yeah, he tore his ACL and then he had like a he had a bunch of even before the ACL, he had had a bunch of uh, like a I mean, I, I could probably find the article later, but it's like there's a ton of lower body injuries he had had. And so his value lies in his athleticism and his agility and if he doesn't have that, it's, it 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 seems to me it it's not going to be as uh, much value of a player compared to when he doesn't have it, just because he's so big. Yeah, I mean, I think he's really good. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I mean, I obviously dump on him all the time now because that's <laughs> what fans will do, right? But yeah. um, like I'm aware that he's really good. I have said and I maintain this that like. I think, and people think this is a knock on him, but I, I really don't. But I was saying, like, I think he's like, can be the third best player in a championship team. That's like what his skill set is, and that's you know, uh, like, let's put it this way: I think way more highly of him than I think of somebody in his draft class who gets a lot more kind of hype, like a Carl Anthony Towns. I think Kristaps is a better player than him, flat out, and. um like he has two-way value, he can spread the floor from three. Like these are great things he brings to the table. Um, I'm just never gonna be a big believer in his ability to be like a high-level shot creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if he had had the season he had in Dallas, twenty months removed from, and I really don't want to hear about like he's rusty coming off from injury because if you're twenty months off an injury, I mean even an ACL tear, I don't think rust is really should be a factor because yeah. Okay. You haven't played NBA ball in that period of time. You've missed an entire season basically, but like is the difference in getting back to speed that different from that to like a normal off season where you don't play for four months. I don't really think so. I really don't think that's that big of a difference. Um, so I don't buy that excuse. I just think that he's an inconsistent up and down offensive player who is a really, really high-impact defensive player. Like, that's where mm-hmm. I think his value is. I think he's just like a – I think he, I, 
he's very similar to Chris Bosh in Miami, which is an awesome player. Like that's a really useful, really good player. And maybe the Knicks sold too low on him. I think that's I think it's a fair criticism to say that. Um, but you know, did we give up a franchise player? Is he that type of like the better way to think of it? And this is what I have how I've always thought of it is. So he didn't make. He's not going to make an All NBA team this year. Whenever the season happens and <laughs> whenever anything happens, uh, he's not going to make an All NBA team this year. Didn't make an All Star team. In the next four years of his contract, how many All NBA teams do you see Kristaps Porzingis making? And I just don't know if he ever makes one, because you're talking about a, like Joel Embiid is alive, mm-hmm. Nikola Jokic is alive. You know there are all these big guys now. Bam. Jaron Jackson Jr. is coming up. Like, there's a lot of good big guys. And so it's not really a knock to say, like, I mean, and even if he makes an All-NBA team, is he really going to make – Anthony Davis isn't even that old. Anthony Davis is 26. You know, like, there's a lot of these guys out there now. And, like, sure, I could see him making a third team. But when you start talking about first team, second team All-NBA, the guys that really, like, move the league and, Mm -hmm. and impact the league, I don't think he's at that level. I think he's a Chris Bosh, which is, like, in the right situation. And he's in that situation now. You know, Mm -hmm. like, Luka Doncic is that type of, like, top 10 player, top 5 player, MVP caliber player. So, like, yeah, they're they're another piece away. So, you know, maybe he's more valuable to Dallas than he was to a team in our situation because it's different when you're maxing a guy and then you're like, okay, well, now we're building around him. And that's different from the situation he entered where it's like we're maxing you, but we're maxing you because you're going to be like, a, a you know, you're the number two guy to our number one guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's maybe, you know, it's just it's different. It's just like uh, we valued getting the cap flexibility because we wanted to make a run at Durant and Kyrie. And that was always the risk. That was always the downside was that you wouldn't get those guys. And then <clears throat> you again, like I said, you've pushed back your your kind of window for being good again two or three years so that's just where we are and um you know i like i said i i will always take shits on chris ups but i am aware of how good he is and i would never deny that he is a really good player well you just brought up uh something i wanted to touch on as we ended the uh the next part of this conversation and that was the the durant and Kyrie uh pursuit and how they are both in brooklyn how realistic did you feel that it was? I mean, because like every single season, every single sport, there are select teams of uh, that have groups of fans on Twitter that just do nothing but Photoshop players into their uniform right. and say, imagine how awesome this is going to be. The Knicks were no exception, where it was Kyrie, Durant, and Zion, and they missed on all three of them. Or, you know, <laughs> you know, other right. players, you know, ending up in a Lakers uniform or... It, it, yeah, yeah. Did you think it was realistic, and were you were you someone who was in favor of this? I mean, obviously, it sounds like a stupid question, but I mean, Kyrie yeah, no, and Durant have their own separate things about them, not just on the basketball court. Yeah, no, no. I think it's a very fair question. So uh, there's a lot of elements to this. Like, so I will go to my you know grave, whatever dying day, whatever you want to say. Um, I will go to my grave believing that Kevin Durant was absolutely 100% signing with the Knicks until he ruptured his Achilles. And I think there's a lot of evidence to support that. Like, 
they did pull, multiple polls during the year of players around the league who were all like, yeah, he's going to the Knicks. There were g- countless NBA writers. Not, and, you know, it's one thing if it's like maybe some local dudes that are saying it, but it wasn't just local dudes. It was like, you know, you had Zach Lowe, Howard Beck, like guys that are national and have no exact like, you know, Bill Simmons, not exactly diehard Knicks fan. They have information. Um, Right, like you know, they, people thought people thought it was real for a reason, okay. And I I think it's stupid to pretend that him rupturing his Achilles didn't change things because I think what the case was was he didn't want to go to New York alone because ultimately he would have been stepping into a situation with like him, a bunch of kids we had collected over the last couple of years, another lottery pick, and and I think the sell was if he's healthy, if Kevin Durant's healthy. I, he'd he'd have been good enough that they would have gotten somebody, even if it wasn't Kyrie. Because to my to my thinking, from what I I, mean, I don't claim to have elite sources, but let's just say from what I've heard, I think it's safe to say that they were out on Kyrie. Like if Kevin Durant come to them and been like, "We absolutely like you, abs- like I'm signing here, but you have to get Kyrie," they'd have been like, "Okay, fine. Well, like we'll max Kyrie. That's that if like you need that, cool." But they were not aggressive about like there was no let's you know like every everybody knows tampering happens okay everybody's aware of this there was no tampering with Kyrie, right like i don't think there was any sweet nothings being whispered to him whereas like brooklyn made the full court press on Kyrie very early to the point where during the playoffs it was being reported that like he was done with boston was definitely going to brooklyn you know like which is crazy to think about but yeah, yeah i mean that's that's what was happening and like once Kevin Durant ruptured his Achilles. I don't think any guy in that free agent class was going to just be like, okay, yeah, I'll go sign for the Knicks this summer and waste a year of my prime while you're like rehabbing this potentially career altering injury. And then the year after that will be good. Like, you know, I, I don't think that was a realistic scenario. But he, he wasn't going back to Golden State. So I think at that point he was like, okay, Kyrie is my best friend in the league. This is still a market I want to be in. Like, this is fine. I'll do this. Brooklyn saw their opening, and they made it happen. Like, so kudos to them. As far as me, I wrote, like, a 2,000-word article a day or two after he ruptured his Achilles about why the Knicks absolutely should not sign him and why they should not sign Kyrie Irving. And I had already I had already said that I don't want them to sign Kyrie Irving because all of his insanity last year, which kind of, like, drove home the point that, yeah, maybe all of his instability – isn't just about like the teams he's on and maybe some of it is about Kyrie just being this weird dude. Um, but yeah, like I, I was, you know, the pivot was not ideal. I wish they had signed less of the one, one year guys kept some of their cap room clean. Maybe they could have taken some salary dumps through the year or whatever. Um, but like the mistakes they made last summer to me were short term mistakes. Um, they were not, mistakes that were ever going to cost them in terms of like two three four years down the line whereas like to me i just i think it's crazy to i think for i think it's crazy to max a guy off of an achilles rupture that max his buddy who is also like a huge injury risk throughout his career has Mm -hmm. been multiple times like i think it's so insane to max those two and then also not just max those two, but all, give like a sweetheart four-year, forty million dollar contract to DeAndre Jordan. 
Um, that yeah. is just insane to me. And then, like, when you look at that, like, that was the Nets. So, like, it's weird to me because the Nets have gotten this pass for, like, this year where it's like, well, it was like, everybody knew they weren't going to be that good this year because Durant was missing the year and, and Kyrie got hurt. But it's like, yeah, but, like, that's why I didn't want to sign Durant as and Kyrie as a package because I knew Durant was out for a year, which is probably, like, you just look – what, he's 31, I think? So you're missing out on, you know, just on a very, like, logical basis, probably the best year of that contract. Um, is he you're losing out on that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, you're losing out on that. Yeah, wow. Then you're, then you're losing out. Then, like, and then, like, you don't get a pass for Kyrie being injured because that is the inherent risk in signing Kyrie is that, yes, he's always fucking injured. Like, like that's the risk. So I just, I don't understand that. Like that logic. So, but like, I mean, that was why I didn't. I was fine with it. Like once they, once he ruptured his Achilles, I was like, okay, that's cool. Because the entire appeal to me of signing him and Kyrie was like, you're basically. I mean, you're basically shorting, shortcutting your way into contention because mm-hmm. Durant is obviously that good, and then I think Kyrie, as a number two, is that good. So like, you know, then then you would have all your picks and all of like your young dudes that you're at that point be willing to move in trades to put in like a good supporting cast around your two stars to win now which is like you know is that ideal like there's a lot of pressure no it's not ideal but this is the nba like the point is to win championships it's not to to build sustainably like you know what i mean like there's a difference between doing that for carmelo and doing that for healthy Kevin Durant and Kyrie. Like, I just think there's a huge difference between those things. So I was fine with that before the Achilles rupture. Once he ruptured his Achilles, I was like, yeah, like, I, got, I, have, I have the receipts. I can show you the 2,000-word article I wrote saying, like, don't do this. <laughs> don't max Kevin Durant. And actually, I would prefer you don't do it. I mean, I, I do think some uh, factor that came into play maybe for Kevin Durant. We all know Kevin Durant is someone who – Let's let's just put it uh, this way. He's he's very concerned with the perception of who he is, and oh, I okay. think if he were to sign with the Knicks, not playing at all this year, the amount of I guess scrutiny he would receive being in New York, playing for the Knicks, what's you know supposed to be this iconic franchise, and just not playing it would just be daily, you know, you know I mean, posts can... about Durant, about him not playing, and you know, is this a waste of money? Then you would have, you right. know, like that clown Mike Francesa just doing some nonsense. It, it, that's what what it would be. And I think what he took into account is I can either go to the Knicks and deal with another year of scrutiny after I had to deal with it in Golden State during that time, or I can go to the Nets where the expectations are different, where people aren't necessarily fixated and focused on them as much, and be able to get no, healthy, no get back. Is. And when we when I do come back, people will be like, Kevin Durant's healthy. Let's see what he can do with this roster. Yeah, I mean, I so it's weird because like there was always a school of thought of like we dodged a bullet not signing Kevin Durant because he is like really snappy with the media and has a short temper. And I'm like, dude, I don't care about that because yeah, he's all those things, but once he's on the court, he always produces. So I don't like if it's impacting his play. That's one thing, but I've never seen any evidence that it does. So like whatever. If he's sucks with the media, and like he's gonna take shots for that, I don't care. But 
um, in terms of this, like, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a benefit of signing in Brooklyn. Like, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares about the Nets. Like, that's just a fact. Nobody cares. They signed Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and the biggest story, uh, like, uh, wasn't that they signed them. It was that the Knicks didn't sign them. It like it, it that was the bigger story, right? It was like, oh my God, the Knicks didn't sign Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and the Nets did. Like, they're the second part of that sentence still, and mm-hmm. it's just how it is. Like, it's not, you know. I mean, what was the bigger story that like the Clippers got Kawhi Leonard or that the Lakers didn't get Kawhi Leonard? I it think was we like all the Lakers had... didn't get Kawhi Leonard. Right, I, like, and I'm not like the Knicks are not the Lakers. All right, I understand that, but like, it's in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of what matters in the city of New York, and even forget the city of New York nationally, like, you know, anything the Knicks do is a big story. It doesn't matter how trivial it is; it's a huge story nationally, locally, whatever. As much as people want to say they don't care about the Knicks, the fact that everybody feels a need to tell everybody they don't care about the Knicks says it all. Um, like that's so you know I I think that's probably a benefit to Durant and Kyrie who's been terrible I think Kyrie has been a way worse with his ability to handle the media than Durant ever has been, um, but like the other aspect of Durant which I just like I mean I don't get the guy because his entire thing is that he doesn't get enough credit for like how good he is, but then he makes these decisions where. He's never going to get the pay. Like, you're, I mean, if you're always looking for, like, other people to kind of validate, like, their feelings about you to validate you, I mean, you're already (laughs) going down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. But, like, if that is what you want, then he has made the wrong choice twice now, right? Because if you were going, if you wanted that in 2016, you can't go to the 73. Like yes, they lost to the Cavs, but you can't go to the seventy-three and nine Warriors and like expect the fact that you won two championships there to change anything about the narrative because, like, I mean they won without you, so you going there and winning two champ like, you know that's not going to change anybody's and it it is like I don't quite frankly like he's allowed like I I hate this idea that we can't comment on Durant like his decision because he's allowed to do anything he wants to do and like it's his life and yeah it's his life I don't don't care like he can do whatever he wants and I'm allowed to like allow his decision to shape my opinion of him as a basketball player when we're talking about his historical kind of like standing in the game because that's really what we're talking about with the player of Kevin Durant's stature right like we all know how good he is nobody's like well, I don't know. I mean, is he really good? Like, no, we know he's really good. We know he's an MVP caliber player. Like, no question. He was has won an MVP. Um, <laughs> and he won two finals MVPs in Golden State. But, like, there was no, like, I mean, I think part of winning championships for these, when you're talking about all-time great players, is kind of, like, the emotional journey. And the narrative, in terms of, yeah, there's, like, a narrative journey to, to them winning a title. And there has to be a struggle and, like, you know, I think that's part of the reason why LeBron's title in Cleveland matters way more than his titles in Miami and why there was such a huge blowback when he did go to Miami. And mm-hmm. why, like, frankly, the entire country, people can act like this didn't happen. Everybody, that, other than Miami Heat fans, loved when they lost to Dallas. Everybody. Every mm-hmm. single person. Every other NBA fan loved that. Okay? Nobody can – people can act like that wasn't a thing. It was a thing. That oh, happened. Oh, I totally trolled LeBron on, on Facebook at the time. 
Or yeah. I, ju- I just posted pictures of him sitting next to, to uh, you know, uh, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. I'm like, was it worth it, question mark? I mean, obviously it was. He won two titles went to the finals right. four times there. But as soon as they lost that game um, <clears throat> and the Mavericks won, uh, you believe everybody had a field day with that. Right. And, and like, and the thing is, if it, it was worth it in the sense that I think, okay, he won those titles, so, like, he at least got that off his back, kind of, like, oh, he, he can't lead a team. But he did. He led the team to two titles, so kudos to him. But, like, there's a reason he came back to Cleveland, because he needed that kind of narrative arc to his career to give it the, I don't know. I, I think it did, let's just say it did a lot for him in his kind of, like, standing historically to have that Cleveland title. It did a lot for him. And I think with Durant, he thought winning with Golden State, like, in his head, he thought it was the same thing as Miami going to, or LeBron going to Miami, which is, like, I just think it's so short-sighted to to think it was the same situation because it just wasn't. Like, yeah, you can say that, oh, yeah, but LeBron teamed up with Wade and Bosh, and, like, talent-wise, it's the same thing, but it's not. Like, it, it's totally different when those guys have already won a championship without you. Mm-hmm. And not just, like... You know, yes, Dwayne Wade had won a championship without LeBron, but that was it. Like, he was the only guy from that. And okay, yeah, Haslam. Who yeah, cares? and that like, t- that team was terrible when he went down there. Right. That the team before was awful. Right. So like that was totally different to Durant going to a team had won a title, had lost in Game Seven after a seventy-three and nine win season to the Cavs. It's very different to go to that and li- and like they. It's not like they had to gut the team. They based all they did was let Harrison Barnes go and replace Kevin Durant with him. And they, oh, and, and Bogut, like, who cares? Like, you know, like, that's what they did. That's all they had to do. And they put in Kevin Durant. And it was like, everybody knew as soon as they did that, they were winning titles. And so, like, there was no narrative. There's no, like, struggle there. The struggle was, like, what was open to him if he stayed in OKC. Because, oh, we had just lost to Golden State in seven the year before. We're right on the cusp. Like, you know, there's all that. There's no narrative with Golden State. Everybody knew they were going to win titles. They won titles. Okay, who cares? And then this time around, it's like if there's kind of like the, I don't know, the holy grail of like carrots for NBA players, like things that you can do to elevate your stature in the game. Like Leading the next to a title is pretty high up there for NBA players. And that doesn't mean that they have to take it. In fact, it might be a reason why you shouldn't take it mm-hmm. um but like for kevin durant if he wants his universal claim to be like loved and appreciated and all this stuff i'm just i'm sorry man but you're not gonna get it in brooklyn like you're nobody cares about the nets they just don't and like i don't think they're gonna win because i don't really like i mean we don't need to go in like i just don't think they're gonna win a title with what they have going on everything um but like Maybe you weren't going to win a title in New York either. But if you do, it changes everything. I think it changes everything about how he's viewed historically if he does that. If he wins a title in Brooklyn, I mean, yeah, I guess a lot of NBA fans, like all NBA fans will probably care, but it's not going to give him that kind of universal acclaim and stature and everything that he seems to be craving for and searching for. It's just not going to happen for him. So, I don't know. Durant's a weird guy. I sometimes feel bad for him and sometimes think he's just like a raging asshole but you know uh, he's a weird dude and i 
I'm just happy that we did not go down that path, even if we're still a bad team. I think um, I'm okay with being a bad team if the alternative was maxing him and Kyrie and giving DeAndre a best friends for life contract. <laughs> best friends for life contract. That's a good way to put that deal. Um, and I'll just add, I really think that it's going to be extremely difficult for Kevin Durant to change the narrative or how he's perceived as a player because of the way he won those titles, because of the way that he seemed to not understand why people seem to view the titles he won in Golden State differently compared to the one Golden State won without him. It just it seems like he doesn't understand why people criticize him. It's and... also weird that he doesn't understand why like Golden State fans will always like like they're always going to prefer Steph and Clay to you. And like I don't like if you need somebody to explain that that's just weird to me. Like I yeah, I mean I it's bizarre. Like you would think somebody that got drafted and played in OKC and was just like defended to the hilt by the organization fans the entire time he was there you would think he would get it but he just doesn't get it yeah it's just i don't think he's ever going to and it's it's going to be unless he just rattles off multiple titles in a row with the nets uh, i don't see uh the perception of him as a player changing all that much yeah it'll be very hard um i think he's kind of locked himself into where we all perceive him at the end of his career. Um, whereas, you know, somebody like Dirk, who only won one title, but stuck it out for all those years in Dallas and, like, finally did it. Um, yeah, I mean, like, one guy, you know, it's fair to think Durant's the better player than Dirk, although I'm not really of that opinion yet. Um, but I think it's also <laughs> a reason why Dirk is pretty much universally loved um, and Durant is very much not. Durant is at least, I think at the minimum, you could say he's polarizing. Polarizing is a good word, and that's a, actually a very good way to transition to our next topic, which would be the one and only Josh Allen. Now, as you remember, I was a big supporter of Josh Allen, um, and I actually wanted the Browns to draft Josh Allen in that particular draft. The, you know, the reasons... Uh, why? You know, he's a big guy. He's someone who's raw. He needs development, needs some time to grow into something. But at the time where the Browns were, that actually fit perfectly with their, with their timeline because they didn't have, you know, guys like Odell Beckham or, or Nick Chubb or any of these other offensive weapons that they have. It was basically, you know, Jarvis Landry and uh, a whole bunch of hope. So I was very in favor of someone like Josh Allen because you could see the potential there. And he was a younger player at the time. Um, I remember you sent me a message that said, sell me on Josh Allen or something along those lines. And uh, I think I did a fairly decent job. But what is your opinion of Josh Allen so far? Yeah, so with Josh Allen, I have, like, he is very much improved from where he was when we drafted him. He's still not where we need him to be to be a legitimate contender and win at a high level. Um, which is fine. Like I knew that coming in that he was a project. So what you wanted to see was a progression. And I think we've seen a good progression from him. Um, his first year was like, I mean, it's, it's stupid to compare how they played without him to with him because their other options were like Nathan Peterman and Matt Barkley. 
So that's fine. But they were, I want to say they were six and six in the games he started and finished um, his rookie season. Almost positive that's true. It might be five and six. It's five and six. He appeared in 12, started 11. Yeah. Okay. So five and six. And like other than, and you know, without him, they basically, they went one and four. So like they, there was a huge difference. And then this year, obviously they go 10 and six and like, Yes, the defense is still the primary strength of the team. It's an elite defense. They had 10 starters come back the year from the year before. This year, they're going to have nine starters coming back on defense, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, so, like, yeah, the defense is still... But where we were is that he made a huge step. Like, he went from 52% completion his first year to 58. That's still below average. But what you saw was, okay, the deep ball... His mechanics fall apart on the deep ball because he gets super flat-footed and just like throws without any momentum, so it's all arm. But then if you look at his intermediate passing this year, it was a massive step up. I want to say he was like – he might have been the top in terms of accuracy between 10 and 30 yards this year. You can double-check that. I'm sure, I'm sure that number is out there somewhere. I'm almost positive he was like very high up in the league ranking in that. Um, he limited his turnovers a bunch. He, I think he's learning that he doesn't have to play like a hero all the time because there are other guys there to do it. And that, you know, look at Wyoming, I have no idea what their defense was like, but I'm assuming that that team was just bad, especially his, his last year there and that he needed to, he probably felt the need like to, to make something happen on every possession. I think he's learning that he doesn't need to feel that way on this Bills team and he still has his moments for sure, like that ridiculous lateral against the Texans, <laughs> just like a crazy that was so moment. Funny. Yeah, it was ridiculous. That was like the worst. That's the worst of him. That is like the worst of him, and I. It's annoying because like that's one of the few national games you've had. So it's like the thing. Oh, see, see, this is the guy. This is the guy, and there are still like advanced metrics that hate him. I know, like Pro Football Focus, they like you know, jerk off into their spreadsheets about how terrible Josh Allen is. Um, They they were not very high on him coming out. They hated him. They still hate him. They still think he's terrible. I think it's weird that, like, I mean, their argument is that the improvement he made is, like, still not good enough, so therefore he's not good enough. Whereas to me, I'm like, okay, I agree. It's not, I agree it's not good enough. But I didn't see anything unsustainable in the good things he did. And I think he improved in a lot of ways that you wanted to see. And now it's a matter of like, okay, can he can he turn like the progress he made in the intermediate passing game? That's good. Now can he make that same kind of progression with his deep passing? And like, you know, the thing I like is that the Bills have given him no excuses now. He has no excuses because the offensive line isn't great, but there's stability there. They didn't turn over a bunch. And they improved their line last season, so it's like you're hoping continuity and stuff like that gets you to a average-ish or better standing. Um, they added Stefan Diggs, obviously, um, so arguably the best deep ball guy, uh, or one of them anyway, and just generally like one of the best receivers in the game. Uh, it slides John Brown, who was really good last year, into the number two role. It slides Cole Beasley down into a very, very ideal slot role. It's perfect for those guys. Yeah, it's perfect for those guys. I think they did a good job in the draft getting 
a couple of bigger targets later in the draft, Gabriel Davis and Isaiah Hodgins. Uh, Dawson Knox was like a good rookie tight end last year. I think he could make a big step up this season, help him. If Tyler Croft is healthy, not not that he's like a big game breaker, but I think he can be like a solid target, a very dependable target in the passing game. Um, Devin Singletary was a really good pick last year and a really good rookie last year. And I think they did a good job getting Zach Moss in the third round this year. So, um, you know, they, they maybe, they don't have like the huge elite game breakers or, I mean, Diggs is, but I don't think they have like the explosiveness of the guys that like, obviously, you know, the chiefs do or something like that, but they have a lot of good offensive players now at the skill positions and the offensive line is good enough that like the support system is all there for Josh Allen. If Josh Allen morphs into some like 62% passing guy, doesn't turn the ball over much, has like, let's say he has like a two to one touchdown, inter- like turnover ratio. Like, you're probably, you're probably a contender, which is crazy to say, but like, that's just how the team is built. Like I, I would find it very difficult to believe that like the bills aren't a contender if he had that type of season. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I, I think Josh Allen definitely is capable of taking that next step because uh, he made such good strides from year one to year two, which is expected. Um, he, imp- he improved his completion percentage. He doubled his touchdowns from 10 to 20. He cut down on his interceptions from 12 to 9. Mm-hmm. I just I, I think that he's someone who's he's very capable of taking that next step forward. I mean, he's only he's going to be 24 next year. He's going to be his age 24 season next year. Right. Uh, he turns 24 right. in the end towards the end of May here. Um. So he's someone who's still very young. He's still someone who's going to have the occasional just hysterical Josh Allen play, like the lateral. Right. Um, the only area of concern that I really have is his fumbles, because he fumbled yes. a lot last year. So most of the fumbles tend to happen. So like the good. So the good thing is that the fumbles don't tend to happen in the pocket. Like he's not getting caught unaware in the pocket, or like having somebody come around the blind side and just like he has no clue he's there and stuff like that. Right. It, that, that's not how those are happening. His fumbles tend to happen when he's because he and like again gift and curse thing. Like great running threat, great running threat. But like this is another area where like the hero ball stuff gets the best of him. Like he's always trying to get that extra yard and get that extra, like, you know, get the first down. Like he's always trying to get that. And he has to find a better balance because like, he's just too loose with the ball sometimes when he's carrying it because he's so focused on like stiff arming somebody or juking somebody. You know what I mean? Like he's always trying to make the extra yards happen. And there are times he just needs to be safer with it. And I think he like, I haven't really looked but I would guess off of, like, memory that the fumble stuff got a lot better after his just absolute clusterfuck of a game against New England um, in week four, I think it was. Maybe in week three or week four. I forgot which one. But, I, can, I can I mean, pull that up here. Let's see. Yeah, because the, he had a terrible game against the Jets and a terrible game against the Patriots to start the year. And, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think the fumble stuff, even if it's not – even if the numbers don't bear it out, I think that fumbles became a little bit more like understandable and more like better plays by the defense. But he, I mean, 
he has to be aware now that like that's on the that's on the scouting report on him, right? Mm-hmm. For every game, he's loose with the ball. Go after the ball when he's running with it. Like he has to be aware of that. So sometimes he has to be okay with like punting the ball and okay, I couldn't get that extra two yards. Or he if you want to go get those extra yards, then like go earlier or be a better passer, right? Like that's the easiest solution really is is be a better passer. Like be quicker with your decisions in the pocket i think if he can do that that eliminates a lot of the fumbles with him um yeah, he had, but he had five fumbles in his first four games uh yeah two, two against the jets two against the Bengals. one one only one against uh new england but over the next nine games he uh you know in the next next 12 games he only fumbled nine more times and three of them came in one game against the eagles so yeah yeah that was a real stinker of a game for him so it's like i think you want to see that kind of I would rather see like okay he had one terrible game but then you're talking about what six fum- six fumbles over 12 games other than that like for a running quarterback that doesn't seem that bad yeah it, it's not like uh, one of the other quarterbacks in your division uh, Sam Darnold who just seems to fumble all the time hey the Jets fans out there are gonna get mad if you say bad things about Sam Darnold. I've I've been against Sam Darnold from the beginning. I've never liked him. I've I don't understand um, the fascination with him. I know you know every time the the Jets draft a quarterback high, everyone's like this guy is the savior. I'm like no he's not. Um, you know my concern with him is he's a he's a USC quarterback and you know you can't hold that against him I guess. But it's not like there's a ton of quarterbacks that come out of USC that are historically successful outside of Carson Palmer. Yeah, I mean they haven't had a history of success, and, and I just not necessarily that good either so far. Yeah, I mean I I think like the so the reason I I actually I think Darnold is good like I or not he's not good yet I think he can be good I think he has really good talent um, I think he has a lot of the hero ball complex that Allen deals with also so maybe I'm just like sympathetic to that um, <laughs> could be but like. I, th- I think that's definitely part of it. But, like, the reason I kind of <clears throat> liked those guys in terms of options for the Bills in that draft were because they had um, they had the kind of arms that you need to play in that division in November and December. Like, you know, I just think you need that big arm guy uh, in that division. And, like, when you have these – I mean, especially in Buffalo, like – and the Meadowlands, those are two of like the windiest stadiums in the league. Um, just like terrible conditions. I mean, you can go back and find like Phil Sims interviews, Eli interviews, and then, you know, obviously with the Bills, like Jim Kelly, Bledsoe, anybody that's played in the division for a long time, like Brady, they always talk about how these stadiums are really hard to play in because of like the wind conditions. So I think Darnold has a chance because he does have really good arm talent. And he's still like, I mean, there are underlying numbers, obviously. I mean, like, you can do this with anybody, right? I did it with Josh, with Josh Allen just now. I was like, well, his intermediate numbers got a lot better. Like, you can do that with any quarterback, any player you want. But, like, I do think with Darnold, there are, like, a lot of good underlying numbers with him. And, I mean, you just watch the film on him. Like, yes, he's going to make – like, I agree with you, like, the fumbles and stuff like that. It's funny because people make such a big deal about it with Josh Allen. But Darnold has had his own issues. He gets a um, pass somehow. And, um, it's, yeah, it, I – it's the polish. It's just like always that polished kind of narrative versus 
Josh Allen's the project. And I mean, there was also a lot of stuff with Allen. Uh, there's like almost a vested interest in Allen. Not people had a very vested interest in him not being good, mm-hmm. and like their their narratives about him pre-draft being true. So he has to do more to turn the narrative, and that's you know whatever. I don't really care um, as long as he does it because he has to do it anyway for the for him to like be a championship winning quarterback. So I get it. Um, but yeah, like I mean, Darnold's he's fine. Like I don't have an issue with him. I don't think he's bad. I think I think him and Allen right now are very much in the same bucket of like there's things to like about them in the right situation. In the right situation right now, they can both be winning quarterbacks. But they are not good enough yet where without a perfect team, they could lead you to contention. Like right now, they are not good enough to be contending quarterbacks. So they need to both make similar progressions, I think, in their games. So con- continuing on the, the discussion of quarterbacks inside the AFC East, uh, because one of them's not there anymore, and that would be Tom Brady. Yeah. And so, so finally, your two-decade-long nightmare is over. Tom Brady is no longer in in your division, mm-hmm. but Bill Belichick's still there, and it's still the New England Patriots. Uh, any concern about the Patriots still being still being good, um, them still being chance to win the division, or do you think maybe uh, a team like Buffalo has a, a legit shot at taking the crown from New England? Uh, yeah, I think I think Buffalo definitely has a legitimate shot. Um, yeah, Brady was washed up last season but they had bigger problems than brady being just washed up too um we saw that in throughout the season like yeah like their skill position talent sucks um i don't even think they did much to address that this summer which is their own decision i don't think their offensive line is as good as it used to be i think did, didn't skarnecchia retire yeah dante skarnecchia is gone yeah yeah he's gone and that guy like is basically the greatest offensive line coach in the history of football um so he's gone. There's been a lot of like brain drain from the Patriots organization over the years. I know McDaniels is back. How good McDaniels is without Brady, I think, is very much a debatable subject. Um, I know there have been a lot of great fluff pieces about how his failure in Denver made him a better coach, and he's so innovative and smart and stuff now, but easy to look smart when your defense is as good as their defense has been and when belichick is the head coach and you have the best quarterback of all time under center like these things help you look like a genius right Mm -hmm. um i i think there's a lot of question marks about them their defense will be good i'm fairly confident about that it's the offense Uh, that we don't know about yeah i I think we know it's not going to be good like we know it's not going to be good steedham his best case scenario this season is being as good as Brady was last season, which was not good, I think. And that's not like, like if he does that, that's actually a good sign for him and the Patriots. I'm just saying like, that's, and I think that's probably setting the bar high for him. Like I like it, trust me, nobody enjoys watching decline phase Tom Brady more than me, (laughs) but, but like decline phase Tom Brady was still, probably around an average to an above average quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Jared Seedham is going to be an average, an, an average to an above average quarterback this season because it's his first season starting in that. And like he, what he, he was a, what was he? A third round pick. Let's see. I will find that out right now. Yeah. But uh, either he wasn't, he wasn't a day one pick for sure. Um, fourth rounder. 
yeah, so he wasn't even a day one or day two pick. Like, there's a reason those guys get drafted where they do for the most part. And it's usually because if they have a chance in the NFL, it's either as a backup or it's as somebody who is like a project with tools that needs time for refinement. And, you know, quarterback is one of those positions that takes a few years as it is. I think it's, you can assume that he's starting at a lower floor than others. So why would I assume that one year behind Brady has him ready to be a quality starter in the NFL? It doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I, I would guess that if Tua had dropped because of his injury concerns, the Patriots would have been all over that, right? So um, that probably tells you whatever you need to know about their thoughts. I'm actually surprised. I, I think they should have signed Winston. I, think, I know Winston is like this roller coaster ride, but, you know, that I, roller coaster ride... If you ever get the kinks figured out, like that, that guy's got all the talent. I've described Jameis Winston as basically uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, experience. He's Fitzmagic and Fitztragic at the same time. So he'll yeah. throw a pick six, but in the next play he'll throw an 80-yard touchdown. Um, it's you know, What's amazing to me is that he just got LASIK surgery on his eyes, and he was just playing, like, not being able to see. Yeah, he was I mean, squinting I, during games. It's insane. I really wish he hadn't because last like last year Jameis was one of the most amazing just experience like the red zone channel was basically just the Jameis Winston network and it was awesome like I enjoyed that experience a lot (laughs) Uh, I I mean I hey look with Jameis like you know he's in a good spot for him maybe he'll learn uh kind of how to like read defenses and film better uh with Breeze kind of showing him the ropes Mm -hmm. but i mean look i don't if if allen doesn't make the step this year i think it's very possible you're looking at like a situation where they do bring in somebody like a winston or a cam newton or something like that next summer that's that's definitely uh definitely possible i I will say in regards to jared stidham is that there are only a, a select people that really know who Jared Stidham is and what he has, what they're working with, and they're all in New England. Um, yeah, I mean, he had he had some weird stuff in college too, right? Like, didn't he have a really good like sophomore year or something, and then he fell off completely his junior year? I think he was at Auburn. Is that right? Yeah, he started off at Baylor, then he transferred to a community college, then he was in Auburn for two years. He was, I mean, he was fine in Auburn. He was a he was a dual threat guy, kind of. Um, he was rated yeah, I mean, as the sixth be- uh, best at some point, uh, but you know, not not a whole lot of touchdowns. Eighteen in both of his years at Auburn, but he threw for thirty one hundred yards as a junior and twenty seven hundred, almost twenty eight hundred his final year at Auburn. Yeah, I mean, I I don't remember, but I just remember reading that like some stuff about him before that draft. I think it was like something where they they had lost maybe some upperclassmen at skill positions that they didn't adequately replace his senior year or like guys that struggled to step up sounds and, familiar with your quarterback yeah, yeah it, it, it and i think it's familiar <laughs> with a lot of court it ends up happening with a lot of guys um and I, I think they also like i mean malzahn also has kind of just like i know auburn fans hated him the last couple of years um so i don't know maybe that's part of it too i'm not trying to like trust me i would i'd love it if he wasn't good but you never know um i new england's done okay i I think their their draft record is actually really not good at all, but uh, what they have been pretty decent with is like finding playable quarterbacks in the mid rounds. Um, 
previously. So maybe that's something that they have done again. They've, they've, they've been successful with that. I mean, they've had guys that have to step in for Brady from time to time for various right. reasons, whether it be his uh, ACL injury as Matt Castle stepping in or, you know, yeah. uh, suspension where Garoppolo and Brissett both played. So they've yeah, been Brissette, able to find guys. Yeah, and Brissett's like, I mean, he's not a great starter, but I think he's probably, he's fine. Like, I think he's fairly solid, to be honest. Like, I, I don't know what else you could ask from him considering everything last year like i think he did a pretty solid job of just like being told one day hey uh by the way andrew luck is retiring so you're now the franchise quarterback pal yeah brissette's uh, fine i mean he's like an, a, a league average type guy uh get the right guys around him a solid defense and he can go out and win you nine ten games yeah and i think they got him in like they drafted him sixth round or something like that so like yeah, I mean, if they if they have done, and, and of course Brady, like they drafted Brady in the sixth round, <laughs> like so, you know, if there's one thing that they actually do well in the draft, it is it is definitely, I think quarterback eval in mid to later rounds. Um, that seems to be something that for whatever reason they have historically done a good job. Yeah, just looked it up. Brissett is a third round pick back in 2016. Uh, you did also mention uh, Tua is someone that you thought the Patriots could have been interested in. Um, I, I do know that from stuff that I've heard that Tua, or you know, the way the Patriots draft is that they have certain ways of grading players, and the okay. way to properly, or for the amount of things that would have happened, had to happen for New England to actually consider Tua as an option for them, were just so many that it wasn't really going to be possible. Well, he, was, he, has, it was, he has so many just, you know, kind of like red marks next to him, whether it be, you know, because of injuries and stuff like that. It's just it wasn't going to be an actual possibility and whether he actually would have been there if they would have even taken him. Right. I mean, there was I, I, I also forget, like, they have some things about, like, they have, like, pretty strong physical, like, they I think they have, like, a very defined physical skill set that they are, like, frame that they go for, right? I think they, like all the quarterbacks they draft are like above six, two or six, three or something. And like, they seem to definitely value bulk a little bit at that size. So yeah, I, I, maybe I was just totally off on that. I mean, Tua got a lot of, uh, people were talking a lot about Tua to New England cause they needed, you know, someone to come in and replace Brady, but it, it was a lot of just people throwing stuff to a wall with not really a whole lot of substance behind it. But Tua is someone that you're still going to have to see twice a year cause he's in Miami. Yes. Miami. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think about having to face Tua? Because um, Miami is an interesting team. Uh, they seem Miami, to be building something there. Yeah, I think Flores is potentially good. I think I think he's he's not bad. I don't think he's bad. Um, I think he's did a fairly solid job last season, um, all things considered. I think their free agent stuff was kind of weird to me uh i i was surprised they spent like they did they took shaq lawson from us which is fine i thought he was gonna get priced out from us anyway because like you can't pay a rotational defensive end as much as you like he got starter money so um that made no sense for us to go and on top of that like but they they spent huge on they extended Xavier and Howard and then they signed uh what's his name from Dallas right the corner Byron Jones yeah I think they set the market for Byron Jones and yep. yeah they set the market for him like I don't 
I don't know how I feel about it. They, they did a lot this summer, and, like, they drafted fine. I don't really remember their draft, but, like, I don't think they had any picks that I was, like, they, they had no Raiders picks. I was just like, <laughs> wait, what? Like, what are you doing? Or, I mean, forget the Raiders. At least the Raiders picked, like, talented dudes at positions I expected them to draft. Like, the Packers and God knows what they're doing. Um, but, yeah, like, I think Miami's interesting – they they were and they're able to pay a lot of guys right now because they cleared the deck so hard last year uh-huh. um so like you know that their prerogative it's i'm not worried about them this year i think maybe a year from now i wouldn't even be surprised if tua doesn't play this year i, I think that he's potentially you know like fitzpatrick is a good lamb to sacrifice for a year <laughs> while Tua gets healthy and like is a hundred percent and they can that's like that can be their kind of secret fit like tanking mechanism right where they're like yeah no we just want Tua to get healthy and Fitz is a veteran and like secretly they're probably hoping Fitz has one of his Fitz tragic years where he throws you know like 28 interceptions and 21 touchdowns or something like that this one go out and replicate a, a Winston season um, yeah Tua's uh, injuries just they're, they're just concerning for me as you know it's an outside uh, perspective. Just you know, it, it seems like I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, well, it's, it's his ankle, it's his hip, it's his wrist, or whatever it was his hand. I think it might have been. It just seems like there's been the someone at one point described him as brittle, and as unfair as that sounds, it it's almost accurate. Yeah. Yeah, he's the other thing too with Tua, and I don't know how to like somebody in that Alabama offense, and maybe multiple guys in that Alabama offense are going to flop. Okay, like when you have that much dominating talent in college, it tends to be like one or two guys were raising the the kind of like performance of others, and it's always difficult to know exactly who it was. Right, because uh, they had Judy, they had um, Rugs, obviously they had Tua, and then who's the other receiver they have? He wasn't in the draft this year. He's coming out next year, I think. Uh, I forget his name. Whatever it was, the third guy. Um, but like when you have that much talent, it's so stacked in Tua's favor, and then it's also like Bama, so it's, you know, like they have like God knows how many first round picks in that team. I I don't know. I, I Bama quarterbacks are always like. I think there's a reason multiple – I mean, have they even had a first-round pick quarterback under Saban before the, before Tua? I don't think so. I mean, it, it, the Alabama quarterback thing is almost similar to USC quarterback things where they're not necessarily all that successful. Yeah, it's like they – because they – if you look at, like, these five-star guys that come out of high school and obviously when they go to college, like, it tends to be, like, a lot of the five-star guys. There's just more of them at – non-quarterback positions because that's just like there are more players at those positions right Mm -hmm. so alabama can like load up on offensive line defensive line wide receivers running backs all these other positions and these guys are going to know like i'm getting i'm going to get reps anyway because that's just like how the like you can have two great receivers and both of them will get reps right Mm -hmm. they're both going to be on the field whereas if you have two great quarterbacks only one of them is seeing the field so, like, I think it's just when a team is that loaded, I don't know what that does for your quarterback's development. And 
in general, it just doesn't seem like they've even had high-profile quarterbacks before Tua, really. Yeah, I really can't think of anyone where I was just like, yeah, that guy was a you know great quarterback. I mean, they've all a lot of the guys have just been essentially uh, hand the ball off to the running back <laughs> type guys. Yeah, or just or just like you know, we have these three stud wide receivers. Like throw it, just throw it to one of them. That's it. Like that's mm-hmm. that's your job. And I I don't know. Like I I Tua is different because he can make plays out of the pocket and. I don't like. I don't like. Is his arm strength so great? I don't know. Like, I don't know. There's just a lot of things with Tua that worry me, and I'm happy. Like, I'm. I would be. I'm not concerned, but I would definitely be like, like the Josh. Like, he's definitely a better, more polished prospect, at least than Josh Allen was coming out. So there's like less. Oh my God, is he just going to be terrible? Um, but, like. I think there's a lot of risk with Tua in just various ways. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought this quarterback class in general, other than Burrow, was just like, dude. I, like, I thought him and – is it Herbert or Hair Bear? I don't it, know. It, it, it's Herbert. Some people sound it uh, Hair Bear or, you know, uh, on purpose yeah. or by accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just – I watched those guys enough where I was just like, okay. Like, they're – they've got things about them I like. But if they were, if the quarterback position wasn't so valued, mm-hmm. would you really draft them where they got drafted? I doubt it. I mean, a lot of some of those guys were drafted as successors to guys they already have there. So it's it's more right. it's more or less uh, investing in a in a prospect with down the line hoping to reap the rewards instead of looking for an immediate impact type player. Now. <clears throat> I, I got to ask you about my team's quarterback. Were you were you not a, a Baker Mayfield fan in college? I was a. I really liked Baker in college. Um, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was really smart in terms of like how he read the field. Um, I thought he did a good job of spreading the ball around, getting different guys touches which sounds stupid, but um, is kind of important. I, I just liked a lot of things about him. I thought he had a charisma that, yes, at times it was like over the top, but mm-hmm. I think you need, I think you need, if you can harness that, that's something that a good quarterback, the great quarterbacks all have to some extent. Um, the arm talent was definitely not his strong suit, um, but it wasn't bad. It just wasn't like, you know, the guy's not just going to be out there slinging it between triple coverage, right? Like, that's just not who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I I don't know. And I, I'm i still, like, undecided on him. I thought he got overhyped his rookie year. I think he got... I don't want to... I think he... It, I think people took a lot of pleasure in his kind of, like, struggles his second season. And a lot of that is because of the splashy moves the Browns made... Mm-hmm. in between those seasons and I don't know how you felt at the time but I, I remember going into the season I was just like their offensive line sucks this is probably not going to be a good team I, uh, I, you could go through my Twitter timeline through all those games I'm like why do we keep running five and seven step drops this offensive line stinks it needs to be quick throws and RPOs and none of that was happening yeah and, and so like you know uh, I just don't know what to think of Baker because yes the offensive line sucked but even then, like you can say, yes, he didn't do enough, and 
some of his entire appeal was that like he was this super polished guy. Has he been? Has he shown enough of that polish? I don't know. I think that like they put together a good offensive line this summer from everything I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weapons are still there. Like he's in it. Like again, like Josh, he has no excuses this year. Mm-hmm. This year he's got no excuses. So like, it's just time to sink or swim. And I think. I think actually, like, that's where most of the third, like, I think him and Darnold and Allen have been put in position to do that. Maybe Darnold less than the other two because the Jets, that. I mean, what's sorry, what was that? I'd probably say less less than for yeah. Darnold. Yeah, and that's just because, like, Joe Douglas, who seems like an intelligent GM, only just got there. So, like, this is their first <laughs> offseason of intelligent management. Um, but, yeah, like, I think that they're all kind of in these positions where – like okay like like you had your first two years and like there's excuses everybody can have excuses but now it's time to kind of like see what can you do and what can you do because especially for Allen and and uh Baker like there's no excuses when it comes to skill position talent or just like a deficient offensive line that's going to get you murdered or something like that yeah and you know I think a lot of people are putting a lot of stock into that um eight game stretch after um the Browns fired Hugh Jackson, which was a long time coming, and they took way too long to do it. But he did so good against such shitty teams, I think a lot of people, including myself, overvalued what he did and put too much stock into that performance because the fact is he still was arguably bad against the better teams they faced earlier in the season. And when you saw them play good teams this season, he was bad again. And is he as, is he as bad as... His worst? No. Is he as good as his best? I would say also no. I think he's somewhere fairly in between, and at the end of the day, that's probably a league average quarterback. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, like I think the. (laughs) It's. There's a really big segment of the league's quarterbacks that are just like all more or less operating at the same level. Mm -hmm. Um, like to varying degrees, like maybe one season some guys operating way better, another guys at the lower end of that spectrum. But like, there's a really big. I think the the biggest misconception people have is that there's like, you know, ten like the, like fifteen quarterbacks suck, and there's like five elite ones, and then ten guys that are good. Like that's really it's it's actually there's probably like five or six quarterbacks that are absolutely terrible. And then there's usually like 15 to 20 that are average-ish to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. And then there's just like five or six that are awesome. Yeah. I mean, I I, I proposed my own uh, quarterback tier system a few years ago where it was, you know, the elite of the elite, which is only like maybe two, maybe three guys. That's it. That second tier, like good, but obviously not um, good enough to win games by themselves type quarterbacks. Right. So maybe somebody like uh, maybe Matthew Stafford type player. Matt, Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan's like another guy. There's that third tier, which would just be those league average type guys. Um, yeah. Then, you know, the next tier, which at the time it was Joe Flacco class. Now I guess it's more Ryan Fitzpatrick class where they can be either really good or absolutely awful. <laughs> then you have the shitty guys. Yeah, it's like that. There's like the high variance guys. Like Winston's probably like the the le- Winston is weird because he's he could be like he's probably grades out around league average, but on a given like play like every play he could be either a top three guy or just like 
you know, should be cut the next day. It's an absolute roller coaster watching Jameis Winston play football. I loved it. It was as a not like as having no skin in the game. It's great to watch. It's it's very entertaining uh, to watch him play football because he can just be. He can throw an absolute dime, then follow it up with just the worst throw you've ever fucking seen. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like football cocaine, man. It just can't get enough of it. It just keeps going. Football cocaine is the best way to describe it. I think that's about it for this. Uh, Thanks for coming on. I mean, this is a a fun uh, 90 minutes of conversation here. Yeah, man, no problem. Thanks for having me on. I'll definitely have you back on once the uh, football season uh, happens and occurs. But, you know, when basketball definitely... uh, Whenever that is. Whenever that if is. It, if whatever it is. version. <laughs> we can talk about the Knicks. We can talk about the Cavs. We can talk about whatever uh, weird shit Kyrie Irving got himself into at that moment in time. <laughs> <laughs>